0: Good morning again. Our uh, our reading this morning is from Philippians chapter two, uh, starting verse one. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. is God's word. Thanks be to God. We are, um, well, this is always the most awkward Sunday in uh, the preaching schedule, because you just we just wrapped up an Advent series, and we'll go back to Mark uh, next week, uh, pick up where we left off in the summer. But um, but this is a passage that we, well, I, I certainly, I've alluded to and quoted a bunch of times this year. Uh, It has been something I've thought a lot about, and the church leadership has thought a lot about as we've been thinking about how to navigate a pandemic and the things to prioritize and the choices we make. And uh, so it seemed like an appropriate passage for this week. Um, So let's pray. Father, we pray that you would speak to us as we come to your word by your spirit, that we might understand the work of Jesus more clearly. So we ask in his name to speak to us. Amen. Well, uh, you've probably seen those memes. They've been going on for a while now, about 2020, right? And what a terrible year it is. So my favorite are the, you know, how it began and how it's going memes, right? Have have you seen these, right? So, uh, So there's ones with like the Jurassic Park, like how it began, it shows you Jurassic Park, and it's it's the it's like that shot where they're all in awe of these beautiful uh, <laughs> I think they're like Brachiosaurus or whatever that are wandering around, and then it's like how it's going, and it shows you like near the end of the movie when the T Rex has destroyed everything and is roaring over. You know that's kind of what 2020s felt like, and so I've heard a lot of people talking about how 2021 is going to be a year to party, be a year of celebration. Of course. We all know that, like, it's not, like, going to be January 1st, <laughs> because I don't know if anybody in this room has actually been vaccinated yet. Um, we're all still waiting on that. But you know how it is. We, we're, we're thinking about all the vacations we skipped over, the parties we didn't have. Uh, we're thinking about what life would be like without the worries and anxieties of worrying, of being in close proximity to even friends and family, right? Uh about not having to have those internal arguments in your family about what exactly is okay and not okay to do. Uh, To actually be in a crowd and not be worried about whether you're going to get sick. Um, We all want that kind of celebration. What's interesting is Paul is telling us what it's like to live in the joy of the gospel in this passage What it's like to live out the hope that we have, to live in peace with one another, to live by faith in Christ, and all those things we've been talking about through Advent. And there's a a peculiar Christmas logic at work here. The logic of the gospel is about what Jesus has done by coming into the world on our behalf. And so we see what gospel celebration is like. It's really, it's rooted in two truths. And a practical implication of them. And those two truths are really this. The emptying of the Son of God and the exaltation of the Son of God. And the implication is to encourage one another. So the emptying of the Son, the exaltation, and the encouragement that we have from Him. So the first truth is the emptying of the Son of God. You might... You might have noticed that Paul begins with his call to the church of what they should do, but he roots it, and he gets back to the reasoning for that in verse 5. And he, and he jumps into what is one of the most compelling, succinct, beautiful expressions of what Jesus has done in the whole Bible. Right? He says, Do all that, having the same mind of Jesus Christ, who, was in the, who though he was in the form of God... Took on the form of a servant. Maybe you noticed that parallel as we were reading, right? That he was, he was in the form of God, and he took on the form of a servant. In verse six, he's described as being equal to God. Now, most of our language about the Christology, right? About Jesus being Son of God and Son of Man, how it is that he was fully divine and fully human, and all that stuff. That that builds up over time, especially in the early church as they're kind of dealing with different misunderstandings of that. But here we have this expression that sounds, you know, curiously like the beginning of the Gospel of John, right? An expression of Jesus being fully with God. The way that we've come to talk about it over the years, right, is that he is of the same substance with the Father. He's the same thing as the Father, even though there are three persons that are distinct, All that is to say, this is still a great mystery. It doesn't explain all that away. Uh, It formulates the mystery. (laughs) Um, It helps us to understand, uh, in part, as God has revealed it, what is true about him, what is true about Jesus and his identity. Though, of course, there is a fullness of that that is still out of our Gasp. I mean, something we can't fully get our minds around. And that's okay, because the point of all this is that the way in which we understand God is through what he has done for us. We don't understand him in the abstract. We understand him by how he has shown up, how he has engaged us. And we understand him by Jesus emptying himself. In verse 7, there's a little Greek word. That's an important theological word, kenosis, in here, right? They, God, uh, Jesus emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? Have you ever, I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. I mean, not his divine nature, right? I mean, this is one of the things we keep arguing about is uh, over the church history, right? As God is, you know, Jesus has to be both fully God and fully human. The point isn't that he is, he's no longer God, but that he lays he doesn't lay aside his nature, but rather he lays aside the rights that he has, the glory. Uh, he, he lays aside the radiance of his holiness. He's still holy. But he lays aside the splendor of his majesty. He has left the army of angels and saints singing before his throne holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what he lays aside, and he enters in. And you see, the task is defined so clearly in verse 8. What it meant for him to empty himself was to accomplish our redemption by humility through obedience. Humility, then, is not a shy disposition. If you think about the stories of Jesus, Jesus isn't exactly shy. It's certainly not about, you know, posturing before others, because Jesus doesn't posture for people. Uh, It's a very frustrating thing about Jesus, isn't it, if we're honest? Um, It was certainly frustrating to many people around him at the time. No, no, no. Humility is, is actively laying aside what he could claim for himself, for our sake, you see, humility, it's like all the other virtues, all the other fruit of the Spirit in, that, in this sense, that it really is only realized when it is put into action. Never in abstraction. There's no way to be gentle if you're not actually gentle towards those around you. There's no way to be patient unless you're patient with those who are around you. We can think of ourselves as that. And certainly there's a kind of internal work, right, that we do uh, in reflecting and thinking and taking stock of what's going on with us. But in fact, it's not really realized until it's put into action. And so too it is with Jesus' humility, and that's why obedience is connected with it, right? Why His, his humility is shown in his obedience. And what's in mind here is not Jesus' moral perfection, I mean, that's true of Jesus, and there's plenty of other places in the Bible that talks about how perfect Jesus was in keeping God's law, but rather, it is accomplishing a task. Jesus' obedience to fulfilling the task of redemption, that's not a task that's laid on you. I mean, you could try, good luck, not going to work. But this is a Jesus' obedience to the task. It, 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 remind, it, it reminds us of the, all those times throughout the Gospels where Jesus talks about how he came to do the will of the Father. He talks about it all the time. All the time in the Gospels. Not my will, but yours. This is what, you see, what he's saying is not that, you know, we could imagine this as if, somehow Jesus and the Father want different things, which isn't what Jesus is saying. The whole plan of redemption, the, you know, we know this throughout the Bible, was God's plan, Father, Son, Spirit, <laughs> inseparable from eternity. It was, it was God's plan before creation ever happened, with full knowledge of the mess we would make of it. But rather, in actually accomplishing redemption, Jesus takes the role of a servant. In accomplishing it, Jesus is the one who must empty himself, who must go all the way, not just to becoming human, but all the way to the cross. He is following the plan. Submitting to the task. This is really what Christmas is about. <laughs> uh, we like we like thinking about uh, people being kind to one another. And there's lots of kids' books, lots of uh, Christmas specials that talk about the, the, the point of Christmas, the purpose of Christmas, being kind to one another. Well, I mean... There's, of course, we should be kind to one another. Uh, that may be a result of Christmas, but the point of it is Jesus emptying himself. The point, of Jesus, the point of reflecting on the Son of God becoming a child, becoming a baby, is not to reflect on his cuteness, <laughs> but to reflect on his vulnerability, reflect on all that he's given up, All that he emptied himself of. The position of weakness that he took. And again, that's just the beginning. To endure the evils of this world, to endure the temptations of it. And finally, to end up with the shame and the horror of the cross. To be despised and rejected by men. To endure his very own divine punishment on our behalf. That's where Christmas takes us, is to reflect on Jesus and his humility, because this is the way of Jesus, is humility. Let's not qualify that. The way of Jesus is humility. We are often distracted by this fact, but this is what Jesus actually says about himself, you might remember these famous words in Matthew 11. He says, "Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is, uh, <laughs> take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart." You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's what Jesus says about himself. There's a beautiful book that came out this year by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. It's a very readable theological book. Uh, it's not very big either. But it is a beautiful reflection on this. And early on in the book he says this. He says, in the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer um, down into the core of who he is, We are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We're not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And we are distracted, I think, certainly outside the church, but very much, and more insidiously, inside the church, To think about the message of Christianity as something else. Something about claiming our rights. Something about claiming power. Claiming our place. Our moral superiority. About putting ourselves before others. And Jesus knows nothing of this. James 3 calls that the wisdom that is from below. But the wisdom from above is gentleness and loneliness. It is the humility of Jesus. And whenever we are tempted to think that there is some other way, or that humility must be laid aside, we've got to see that we are leaving the way of Jesus. Because the way of Jesus is to empty himself. There is a second truth though. There's the exaltation of the Son of God. Because the story, of course, doesn't end with Jesus emptying. He is exalted, verse nine. Uh, he is exalted, he's given a, a name that's above every name. I mean, that's that's God. <laughs> that is the Lord. That is his name. He's exalted above that as a reward for his obedience, right? As a thing that is recognized. Because he was obeyed, he is resurrected and ascended and now, even now, on the throne of God. And here's the deal. Jesus knew that was the plan. And I think sometimes we think, well, it must have been easy because he knew the plan. Right? Like the fix is in. Like he he knows where it's just going. Um, I think that is completely to misunderstand, however, what's going on. Because if God knew the end, it means he also knew what the path looked like. He knew the horrors of what he would endure. Imagine having full knowledge of that. I mean, you and I I mean some some of you have endured difficult things, right? But imagine if you had known beforehand how hard they would be. But he endured all of it knowing. Imagine having the full knowledge of that and entering in. Imagine knowing that you were going to have to endure hell itself. To be separated from the love of the Father. That should tell us something about the power of his humility. And he would leave all it and endure that. And of course, the end game in verses 10 and 11 is the praise of God, the glory of God. That Jesus himself would be worshipped by everyone and that all praise and glory would be returned back to the Father. Because this is God's greatest glory. It's not merely that he be a great creator. Be the one who created all things bright and beautiful. It's not merely that he accomplished all that. It is not merely even to judge the world after we messed it up. God's glory, rather, is that he is not content to let it fall away. He is not content to leave it as it is, but to undertake the immense task of love and determination to redeem us. So that the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus ushers in are something more profound even than creation itself at the beginning. I mean, that is wisdom beyond our grasp, isn't it? To endure all that for our sake. You know, we say around here a lot, because it's in our catechism, right, that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I wonder if we realize how those are connected. (laughs) That enjoying Jesus is what glorifies God. Enjoying what he has done. Reveling in it. Celebrating it. Coming back to it over and over and over again. Rehearsing all that Jesus has done for us. Coming back to the one who was gentle and lowly in heart. That is what we're called to do. That's what it means to enjoy God. And that really is the end of it all. Which means that all of the different ways in which we are tempted to simplify the gospel and focus on ourselves are all dead ends. You see that? I mean, there's lots of ways to misunderstand the gospel. Uh, You know, certainly certainly in places that are still pretty nominally Christian, like the South I grew up in, uh, the South that still to some extent exists, right? Parts of the Midwest where, you know, kind of everybody's Christian. That's changing. Charleston is very much in flux in this way, right? Charleston is becoming more post-Christian. But either way, it's still easy to misunderstand even in a post-Christian society. It's just as easy to think of uh, our Christianity as this private endeavor, you know, there's one way of taking it that's kind of, you know, fire insurance, as they, you know, cynically say, right, that um, I'm just going to be delivered. You know, I'm, I'm going to make sure I prayed the prayer to Jesus. I'm not going to think about Jesus that much along the way, but I, I'll be saved, right? Um, there can be, I mean, that, that's more the nominal Christian way, right? There You can do the, the post-Christian thing and still privatize it, right, because you just don't want to rock the boat with people who don't think the same way you do. We can take the moralistic route, and uh, and this is the case in either direction, right? We, we think, boy, I'm just going to be the best person out there. And that's going to be compelling. We can think about it as keeping social status. Whether we hide it or flaunt our affiliation with Jesus, we can think about the primary calling of the church as being some sort of social program for the world around us. Again, that could be liberal, that could be conservative, whatever it may be. The point is all of these myths that the work of the gospel is all God's work. All for his glory. Meant for you to revel in and enjoy. Meant for you to celebrate all of it is. It really is. It's all good. It's all of Jesus. And until we stop and come to terms with that, it will not be, it will be a difficult thing to celebrate. Cuz the Bible does engage us. It does call us into holiness. We'll talk about that in a minute, but (laughs) more in a minute. It does call us into action, but if that action is rooted in our anxiety or our fear or our pride, our sense that we we need to be something for God's sake to prove something to him or to prove something to the world around us, the more that we engage in that way of thinking, the more we make the gospel a thing of our doing. And what Paul is reminding the Philippians, what the Bible is telling us over and over and over again, is that it is all God's work. Even your sanctification, the transformation that you're called to undertake, is still God's work. That's freeing. That's what will cause us to celebrate. That's what breaks the grasp of fear and anxiety and self-righteousness. But we only see it when we see the humility of Jesus entering in. You can only see the mystery of the gospel when you grapple with that. It's only when we see Jesus entering in, emptying himself. And we see how strange the whole picture is. Because the aspects of what we are called to live into really do seem foolish, don't they? They do. They do seem like a sucker's game, a fool's errand. I was looking back at Charles Dickens' *Christmas Carol* this year, and um, early on, before the ghosts show up, <laughs> uh, somebody comes into his uh, his storefront and asks him for money, and Scrooge says. It is enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with others. Mine occupies me constantly, Of course, he's playing on the idea that his business in terms of his general business is also his actual vocation, and there's really no distinction with him. It is all about making money to Scrooge, right But later on, <laughs> when the ghost of Marley, his old partner, shows up, and uh you know this is this is also still pretty early on in the story he he says to to Marley, he says, You were always a good man of business, Jacob. Business, cried the ghost. Mankind was my business. The commonwealth was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the incomprehensible ocean of my business. And you see what Dickens is on to is that It's so easy to see it's a fool's errand. It's so easy to think of all that we're called to as just a pipe dream. Well, it would be nice if people kind of lived that way, but I can't get by like that. What my family needs is something else. What it takes for me to get ahead at work. Takes a different set of values. Of course, what Dickens doesn't see is the guarantee. It is still ultimately a story about what you have to do. And so, it's with the grasp of the emptying of the sun and the exaltation of the sun that we actually hear, can hear the encouragement in verses one through four. If you have any encouragement in Christ, if, you, if your identity is in Christ, right? If you, have, if you participate in the Spirit, if you have any comfort from that love from God, any affection or sympathy, then complete Paul's joy. That's what he says. Complete my joy. Isn't that a weird thing? Paul, of course, isn't saying... Uh, that his joy rests in them. His joy is in Jesus. And Jesus has completed his work, but the application of it into our lives is still ongoing. And that's not a mystery. <laughs> doesn't take long to live as a Christian, to realize that uh, this isn't getting fixed quickly. This is a long-term project. It's going to take well, your whole life. The completion of Jesus' work is what he's thinking about, right? And he's thinking about how they could live out the joy that Jesus brings. But notice this. That might sound a little nebulous. He says you you do this by having the same mind, by, you know, a kind of unity that we hear that talk. But the next two verses clarify exactly what he means. How is that unity lived out? By counting others as more significant than yourself. Verse 3. By looking after others' interests, verse 4. That's what unity means. There are lots of different ideas about Christian unity. Some have more merit than others. But it is certainly not a robo- robotic agreement and acquiescence to every idea that's floating around in the church. What it is, is a lived care for others, a priority to love others, to put, well, to count them as more significant than yourself. That's what Paul has in mind here. That's the kind of unity that Paul is looking for. And we've got to admit that modern America is a conspiracy against this kind of thing. Because you've got to look out for yourself. That's how we think, isn't it? And that has seeped into the church. I am thankful for how Two Rivers has handled the pandemic. I, uh, I'm, I really am. But we could easily be, be overcome by this. And having lots of friends who are ministers, I've heard some tough stories about what the last nine months or so has been like. This could easily overcome us. And look, you see what Paul is doing here. He's saying you're supposed to be conformed to the character of Jesus. That's not confusing that Jesus is unique, right? Only Jesus could achieve our redemption. Only Jesus could give his life for ours. Only Jesus could actually mediate between the divine and the human. Only Jesus could perfectly work justice. Taking judgment for us and giving us his righteousness. right? Only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus could bring about our adoption as God's children, purchasing us out of our sin. And look, only Jesus can guarantee and give sanctification. But in this way, because Jesus is so beautiful, he's the thing we are being changed into. Because his goal And all of that is to bring us into God's presence, to enjoy him. And you got to be able to appreciate who God is to enjoy him. And that's what he's slowly changing us into. He's looking at the church and longing for them to be changed into that pattern of Jesus' character. Not so that they become independent of Jesus, but so they become more deeply dependent on him. More profoundly connected to him. He knows it's a guarantee. But it's still something we're called into action. We're touching on a lot of mysteries I think of the faith this morning, right? We are called into action, yet it is still God's work. And Paul's confident to call them in there cuz he knows that's what the spirit's doing. Because he knows that would that's what Jesus will bring about in his church. And that brings clarity to the task, doesn't it? It brings clarity to us as a church. I mean, I think a lot about what this next year might look like. In mid-March, nobody knew what was happening, (laughs) right? We didn't know anything. We just knew we couldn't be in person. And then we scrambled for several weeks trying to figure out what we were doing, you know, with Zoom and all these different things. We tried to... And then it was kind of a waiting game. And really, in some ways, we've been waiting since, I don't know, (laughs) June when we started getting back together in person, Uh, some of us anyway. You know, many are still at home. And we've been waiting for this vaccine, and it's coming. I actually think maybe the harder questions lie ahead. Not meeting in person was the easy choice. (laughs) What are we going to do as things start to loosen up, but many are still afraid? As some are vaccinated and some are not? Are we going to revel in our freedom, or are we going to think of others as more significant than ourselves? I'll be honest, sometimes I'm afraid of what this next season could be. But what I ought to think is that it's an opportunity to live out the humility of the gospel, to live out the humble heart of Jesus that you're being conformed to and I'm being conformed to and putting others before myself. Humility is an elusive virtue. If you try to stop and consider, am I humble? How on earth do you come up with an answer to that? I mean, the only right answer is you're not. Because the minute you think, I'm pretty pretty humble, you realize your pride is welling up in you. But like most of the virtues, the, the thing, again, is not to stop and ask, Have I arrived? But how do I continue to live that out? Live out what I'm called to in Jesus here. See, the assessment is not so much in whether I can consider myself humble, but whether I'm actually putting the interests of others before my own. That's the goal. And in that question, you can ask yourself in this situation, am I thinking of others? Is more significant than myself. I want 2021 to be a celebration as well. <laughs> but some of the ways I hear it described are a celebration of self-indulgence. All the things that I've missed this past year. And I wonder what it would look like if we thought it as a celebration of the joy of the gospel. A celebration of being more and more transformed into Jesus-likeness. A celebration of that act of love towards one another. Of thinking as others is better than ourselves. That maybe the thing we've been missing out is that ability to actually be as connected to one another as we'd like to be. As we should be. And what we need to do is lean in to the interests of others. That would be a beautiful celebration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus did not consider his own interests above ours. We thank you that your son emptied himself, took on the form of a servant to redeem us. Not only that, but that you have exalted him Because it is truly a beautiful thing what he has done. It is powerful. It is effective. It has met the demands of your justice. And it has put on full display the extent of your love. Teach us the humility of Jesus. And as we look at a coming year, we pray that you would teach us to put it into action toward one another. For your sake, and in Christ's name, amen.